0: lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. John, the very first chapter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, I know it's... At least the second Sunday in the new year, but some of you weren't here last week, and so I, I still stretch the legs a little bit and ask you, uh, it is a new year. How many of you, be honest, don't be cynical if it's, if it's you, how many of you have made some sort of New Year's resolution this year? Something you want to see happen in your life? Just like a handful. Uh, the rest of you, how many of you have made one once in the past ever in your life and refuse to do so anymore? Everyone else? Okay, got you. New Year new things, new goals, and whether or not you were foolhardy enough to try again to set resolutions and to break them. The fact is all of us have to plan out our year and it's a reset. You sit down and you think through 2024. I mean you're forced to think through your taxes and your budget for this year probably. You might be thinking through where you want to travel or what you want to accomplish at work or maybe new relationships or new hobbies. There are many things that you're thinking about. Even if you're more in the present or in the past, we're forced at certain times of year to think about the future and to plan for it. Maybe to save up money for things, to pray for new things. You know, in New York, it's really easy to think of all of this as sort of climbing the ladder, right? That old metaphor that there's something at the top, there's something beautiful, there's something up there in the penthouse or the rooftop view or whatever it is, and you're trying to climb the ladder rung by rung and see how high you can get. And yet often... It can feel like you get knocked back down again, and maybe you're just even hanging on to the bottom rung. But in our better moments, we still say, I want to see better things than my life. My life is fine. I'm thankful for it, maybe on a good day. But also, you want more. There's something more that you want in your life when you allow yourself to still dream and to think. You want greater things, you want to have deeper joy or connection or meaning or purpose. And I just want you to hear, especially those of us who are cynical because we've tried and tried again and realize we're always kind of still the same and the world still feels the same, that we're in the Gospel of John, we're in the first chapter, the very beginning, and after this amazing uh, prologue at the beginning of it, this God who made all things became flesh, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, shows up in the first words that he has in the entire good news according to St. John, the first words of Jesus On the planet, according to John, are this. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? The very first words from God in human flesh in the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? And so we don't often take the time to consider this first question Jesus posed to us. He asks us when we come to Him, What are you seeking? What do you want? What is it that you actually most deeply desire beneath your frenetic activity? And it's the kind of question that can stop us in our tracks and make us squirm sometimes because it cuts to the core of our being. It reveals who we really are and what really drives us. It can expose us if we're to be honest with this question and to sit with it. It's often a question we'd rather deflect and avoid for various reasons. But it's a question that God wants us to answer. It's a question we must answer. If you actually took the time to answer this basic question, how would you answer? And maybe if you remember nothing else, maybe that's your application for this week. Go home and each day, take a few moments beneath the frenetic activity and the planning and the dreaming and say, okay, yeah, I put all these goals or I, I didn't put goals, but if I wasn't so cynical and broken, I might. And yeah, deep down, what is it? I mean, what is it that I most want? What's missing? What's lacking in my life? What am I seeking? Maybe you'll come up with perfectly legitimate answers like, I'd like a little more security and safety. I just feel so unmoored and unsafe all the time, financially or otherwise. Maybe it's just to quit being so sad and to be more happy. Maybe it's for friendship or for a good kind of pleasure, for maybe more control of your circumstances, for people to recognize what you do, to give you a claim Maybe it's for more power and influence. Maybe it's for acceptance. And I want you to see, first of all, that Jesus cares about these wants. He doesn't dismiss them. Your hopes, your desires, your longings, sometimes misguided, sometimes guided in the right direction, sometimes half hearted, all of them as they are, Jesus cares about them. The first words of God in the human flesh is What is it? And what is it that you're seeking? What do you want out of life? What do you desire? And so true spirituality ought to begin by answering this question. What is it deep down that you're really seeking out of life? What do you want to see happen in your life? When you envision a purposeful and amazing 2024 and beyond, what do you envision? What do you see? What does it look like? And then Jesus as we'll see in this passage and just as we pay attention to his recorded history in this epiphany and this year together, Jesus doesn't just leave us with that question. He begins to ask us to reflect on these desires. No matter where they fall in the spectrum, to reflect on the fact that even though he dignifies them and he wants to know what they are, and he wants us to be honest about what they are to begin this journey, that these desires are not enough to sustain or satisfy us on their own. These desires, whatever they are, for power or claim or security, it's not enough to keep you hanging on the ladder when the winds are too strong and people are shaking it to knock you down. Eventually, these desires will let us down. We'll stop caring. Say, I tried and tried and tried. I'm just going to comfort myself with something much smaller than that dream. They will let us down. And so they're fleeting that way. And Jesus' goal isn't to shame us by asking this question, but to get us to be honest so that we can be reconnected with our deepest desires and then redirect them towards something solid and lasting, something actually satisfying. And that is he wants us to envision our lives with him, to stake our lives on him those plans, those prayers, those savings, those all the things that we're doing for 2024, to have them be centered on our life with Christ. And he does this because he created us out of nothing. John 1, the the one who created all things, who was with God and was God, and all things were made through him, and nothing was made without him. This God who made us out of nothing is our creator, and he's the only one, therefore, who can sustain us, who has enough Power and praise and security to take care of us, to satisfy us, to keep us from falling off the ladder and slipping back into nothing. That's why Psalm 34 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and then He will give you the desires of your heart. In that order, and together, He will call us to follow Him, not our own desires, our own plans our own uh, sort of resolutions, but to follow him, to center him. Again, to prioritize him in our plans and dreams and aspirations for personal growth, to let our individual desires get in line behind him to follow, and also our communal and collective desires, to follow him in the kingdom he is bringing into the world. And see, today as Epiphany where he reveals himself to us. And one of the first things he reveals to us is that he wants to know us. He wants to know what our deepest desires are. He wants us to actually know, to be in, in touch again with our deepest desires, so that he might call us to follow him with those desires. Verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me, Philip. This is the very beginning. Jesus is just coming on the scene. He's asked them what they desire. Then he says, Follow me. Immediately after that, Philip is following Jesus now and he runs back to find his other friend. He goes to Nathaniel, and he says, "Nathaniel, we found him. Come with us. Come and see. Come and see. Follow Jesus with me and see this amazing new thing that wasn't in what you envisioned in the world, but see what God is up to. And this is what discipleship is, to call one another to follow Christ again and again to recenter our lives around him, to re-prioritize him year by year, moment by moment, that we might see new things beyond our own visions, but under our limited eyesight. And this is important, this idea of seeing this picture that is both figurative but also literal. To be able to see clearly, to see the present truthfully, to see the future with the eyes that God sees it with, See, we look at 2024 and beyond and we see all kinds of things, individually and corporately. Again, some of you are more optimistic, some of you are more pessimistic, some of you are more resilient, some of you get cynical easier, I get it. Maybe you see opportunities for betterment. You envision changes to your waistline and to your bottom line. Some of you see hard things that are hard, but opportunities you want to master, a new challenge, a new hobby, a new breakthrough. Some of you see hard things on the horizon, the painful illness of loved ones, an election perhaps you're terrified of, war it seems all over the place. And the thing that we need most is to see and to believe that God is steadily and still working his kingdom life into our own lives, your life, and into the world. But the entire testimony of the scriptures from beginning to end is that at this place and this time, we don't see very well. See, I turned 40 and almost like clockwork, suddenly I couldn't see 10-point font anymore. It's been five or six years since then, I can't see 12-point font very much anymore. I can't see it clearly. You can hand it to me and I'm like, I don't know what's on that label. And I suddenly feel very old, but that's what it is. I used to see and I can't see clearly anymore. I have bad eyesight when it comes to small things. And this is the biblical metaphor for the human condition. We once saw, but by going to our own plans and going away and turning to envision things the way we want, the world to be the way we want, our life to be the way we want, to be our own gods, as it said, to have our own knowledge, to, know, to us decide what is good and true and beautiful and what is not good and true and beautiful, what's good and what's evil, we get to decide. That led us to having bad, bad eyesight, can't see clearly anymore can't see the truth clearly of our own of ourself of our relationships and of our world in fact the bible says we are blind when it comes to seeing god correctly and to seeing his work in the world and this can happen from focusing on the wrong things and having the wrong lenses the long frames if you will to use a metaphor right the wrong lens the long, wrong frame the way that the news would frame everything that's happening in the world as constantly wicked, awful, and to be afraid of so that you will keep clicking and they'll take your money. The news that you follow, the stories that you tell, even just the narratives that you repeat over and over again about your life. You get in these habits, you get in these stories, and then that's all you can see. They become self-fulfilling prophecies. Again, whether they're optimistic or pessimistic, we tend to minimize the whole truth we especially tend to hide the hard parts, to hide the parts that we don't want to see from ourselves and from others. And mostly this means we project. We project images of ourself and upon others, usually to look better than we feel deep down. See, if you ask that question, what do I actually deeply desire out of life? Deep down, that voice that I've had since I was a child that it still shows up in a certain way. I'm I really desire it. And you allow yourself to think about that. It's painful. It's painful how far you and your life is, probably, from that original dream. And we don't like the way that feels, so we hide it from ourselves. We make justifications. We only show the good parts of ourselves together. I'm not just picking on social media, but our whole lives might as well be Instagram at this point, right? You come here and you pass the piece and you have a bagel and you tell people the good stuff. You don't tell them the hard stuff. And I understand there's you know, emotional quotient reasons for that, you know, and just relational, social reasons sometimes. But we tend to craft personas for others to see and masks so our identities can shift all the time. And what this means is that we are actually unknown in our depths, in the deepest part of who you truly are. Your truths. You often feel alone and unloved. We, whether we're religious or not, often show only the parts of ourselves who will be seen by others and by God as moral, right, good, acceptable, on the right side of history, but ultimately worthy of love. Adam and Eve did this, and they called it coverings. They were fig leaves to cover the shameful parts and make sure only the pretty parts were left to be seen. And I just want you to hear this morning that we will never be able to see straight, clearly. We will never be able to see the whole if we are not seen straight, truthfully, clearly, in the whole. The good, original desires, as well as all the dark and hard parts of ourselves we don't want to share. And the good news of the gospel is that we are seen by God despite our covers and masks and projections. We are seen, and that could be terrifying. It is a little bit. Until we're seen, and in the moment of being seen by God, we are told that we are known fully, not just in part, and we are loved. Holy love. Clearly loved. Being seen like this allows us to open up to God, and then begin to see again clearly. We see this in our text. Let's just walk through the text for a few minutes. See here were these people? Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were people fawning around the local uh, recent upstarts of sort of potential messiahs or religious figures. Whatever they were, they all had plans. They were looking for personal and communal flourishing. They were really upset that their people had been oppressed and didn't occupy their own lands, were being oppressed by Rome, and they wanted to see God's king come and set them free. They also wanted people to relate in shalom with one another and to live flourishing lives of justice and mercy. And they wanted personally to be a part of that, to see their own lives grow and flourish. All of these people would have been attentive, the original disciples to what in modern parlance we might call spiritual wellness trends, right? They knew all of them. They're aware of them. They'd sampled where they stacked up. A lot of them found themselves near John the Baptist. Some of them, again, just stayed busy fishing. But they all wanted to see God's kingdom come and to make everything right because their situation was broken. See, these first disciples weren't so unlike us. They weren't naive people, just sitting around with no jobs, Happily debating Old Testament verses in their desert prophecy school while they're enjoying fig lattes and manna scones? No. They, like us, had reason for discouragement and cynicism too. We spent the whole fall talking about the great dechurching and all the millions of good reasons people have left the church. They understood what it was like to be marginalized and to be minority and to be in a time of decline. They had reason for discouragement and cynicism too. They saw their version of the news and the dark realities. Most of them had stopped expecting God to show up after 400 years of silence. They'd seen their glory days come and go. They'd seen the fake charlatan messiahs and dozens of denominations splitting, trying new things. But somehow they hadn't lost all hope and then there was just something about this Jesus person. They're attracted when they encounter him. Their hearts melt a little. They grab their friends by the sleeve and they say, come on, I don't know everything, but I'm seeing something different. Come on, just try it out. Come and see with me. Andrew sees Jesus and goes and gets his brother Simon. Then Andrew and Simon Peter's neighbor, Philip sees Jesus and he goes and tells the guy named Nathaniel, hey, we found him whom all of our story points towards. His name is Jesus. He's Joseph the carpenter's son. He's from Nazareth and now Nathaniel. He gets to be our hero this morning. Nathaniel, the New Yorker. Nathaniel says, Yeah, right. Can anything good come out of Mississippi? I mean, Nazareth, right? Humph? Really, Philip? The Messiah from Nazareth? Yeah, right. Might sound like you in your head or like our neighbors think about the Christian church today. Nathaniel might should be our favorite disciple as New Yorkers. He's a good, street-smart New Yorker. He's a cynic. It's like this in modern parlance, and I'm sorry, I'm Gen X, I'm not a Gen Z, I would have got my kids up to do it, but they're out of town. Something like this, I'm, skepti- I'm skeptical, skeptical, Philip. Bro, I know how to do do or, dead, bed, sty. Do or die bed sty. I'm not taking a flyer from those fools at Union Square. I know how to jump the red light before the tourists do. I know nothing good comes out of Staten Island. And you expect me to believe the king, God's son, is a nobody from Nazareth? Yeah, right, Cool. I'll give you my life savings for Bitcoin too, right? Philip says, okay, I get it, I get it. Just come and see. Come and see for yourself. And in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I love this. Jesus messes with Nathanael's cynicism right out of the gate. Hey, look everybody. Everybody in Israel, Look. Fool this guy. He's too shrewd. He can see everything. He's seen it all. See what's up. No one's pulling one over on him. Nathaniel says, all right, how do you know me? How is it that you see me and know me? And Jesus said, hey, before Philip even called you to come see what was up, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, if you know your Bible, you probably realize there's lots of allusions to fig trees. But to a person of God who would become an important figure in the Older New Testament, to be sitting underneath a large plant for shade is uh, only happens a couple times. The main one that happens before here is the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah who was called by God to do things and to follow God to a place he didn't want to go. And mostly he was upset because he was going to his enemies, a place like Nazareth or, you know, Whatever, whoever your enemy is in your head, called to go and to enact and proclaim God's forgiveness of them. He didn't want his enemies to be forgiven. He knew that it would say they were sorry and get forgiven. And so he's mad. And so he's pouting under a large plant that God grows up to give him shade. And he's upset. It sounds a little bit like Nathaniel, sitting under the fig tree, cynical, got his, you know, armor on. They're pouting, they're disappointed. Their mind is focused on their own story, their own circumstances. They only are going to believe what they've already seen. They don't want to see something new, to believe something new. But here he's seen clearly and it begins to open up his mind like Jesus saw me. He sees that truth about me. How did you know this? How did you see it? And see, this is... This is scary when we're seen, but it's how growth happens. It's how God happens in our lives. You know what it's like when a close friend or a spouse or somebody is a person who truly sees you, who knows who you truly are, who truly gets you, and who truly understands you? I remember this is such a small anecdote, but I use it because maybe you can make it an application for you, something like this. I remember being a young person in college. I was meeting with my campus minister, a new campus minister to me, uh, he ended up marrying us and, and you know, set a trajectory for my life. But at the time, I didn't really know him, and we were just sharing our stories. And at one point, I was like, well, this and that. I was a military brat. I moved around. My parents got divorced. I was in Texas. Da, 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 and he stopped me. He said, I'm sorry that your parents got divorced. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But anyways, it took us to Texas, and that's why I was there, and that's why I'm here. And you know, I don't, this is the first place I've ever lived. Jameson, I'm really sorry. That must have been really painful. How old were you? It's nine. I'm so sorry that your parents were divorced. And like, I just got tears in my eyes because I was in the story of you just, you do or die, you keep going. It's just, you you paper it over, you move on. But I was seen in that moment. And my vulnerability and my pain was seen. And I was known. And I began to love that man because he loved me well. This is how growth happens. When we allow ourselves to be seen, and we see others beneath the surface. So Nat is shook. He says, how do you know who I am? You saw me when I thought I was alone. You mean God wasn't far and away, absent, even when I was over there under the fig tree going through my like narratives? You saw me? Huh. I'm not alone hanging on to this ladder? My life this year isn't just what I can plan or imagine or see. In other words, for us, there is no secular moment in your life. God sees everything all the time. He says, well, you must be the son of God. (laughs) You must be the Messiah. This is amazing. You've seen me and now I believe. He goes from a cynic to a convert. And God isn't just his voice. He's a person calling us to follow him, to be seen by him, that we might see new things. He says, you think this is great. You've begun the journey, Nathaniel. I saw you. You received it, even though it's a little bit of a critique and a challenge to you. You say, I'm known. You really know me. You must be something more than I would have seen if I just saw you as someone from Nazareth. He says, this is great. You believe this? Just hold on for dear life. You're going to see things that put this to shame. You're going to see the greatest things Even though nothing would look like much on the surface for a while, Jesus wasn't a worldly expert or a celebrity. They didn't build their kingdom with their ingenuity and connections and their bare hands and their ideas and agendas or their dollars. The disciples would constantly be wayward. But now they had this assurance that God was with them, seeing them and seeing all that happened to them and seeing the world through his eyes. They could follow him and walk with him and see new things, see everything in a different light. And they would start asking, "Where is God in this suffering, this self-sacrifice, these weapons and strategies of peace and submission, this weird life that Jesus is calling to us to, the downwardly mobile life, you might say, "Where are you leading us? What is this cross, this blood, this death? Where is God in this?" And even there, a light from the tomb. And all this thing Jesus had said, of all these things that would happen to them, you will see greater things than these. Things greater than you had planned, greater than worldly fame greater than money, greater than a thin waistline or a robust bottom line, greater than a shining track record of philanthropy. No, all of these things. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna show you how the kingdom is everywhere actually. And the kingdom is actually, especially in the places you least look for it or expect it or see it. He says, you think being seen is great, it is. That's just the beginning. You're going to see some amazing things. And what he does there is say, you're going, to see the, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And for the sake of time, I won't read you this whole thing. But that's an allusion to Jacob's ladder. When Jacob was in a place all alone and he slept and then he woke up he saw a vision that there was this ladder to heaven and the angels were coming up and down on it, that this place he thought was just this secular place of sleep and of his own stories and of darkness and he was all alone and no one saw him and God was nowhere nearby. He wakes up and says, surely God was in this place all along. Surely this is his house and I never even knew it. And Jesus is saying, that's about to be me. God is gonna come down the ladder to you where you are through me. You are going to see God in and through me in ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. Whatever we're seeking to find in life, the deepest, truest, best aspirations we have given from God are to find our life and satisfaction in and with him and to see the whole world and ourselves with new eyes through Jesus. See, he is the true life who seeks us, who sees us and comes to us that we might follow him. He is the ladder where you start to say, surely God was in this place and I knew it not. And he simply asks us to follow him wherever we he goes. And so, in closing, how do we have our eyes opened to Jesus? How do we find life in him? How do we be more attracted to him? And there's lots more to say. Hopefully we'll talk about these things in Epiphany in this year. But start with the easy ones in this new year. I won't even ask you to make a resolution. But go where Jesus is more often. Where his people are gathered, saying, he's over here. Come and see. No, 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 leave your fig tree. Leave your narratives. Lift up your eyes from what you're focused on for a second. Come over here and look at him with his, where his people are gathered. Follow him to this place and to that place and together. Come to church more often than you do. Find Christian community more often than you do. And in that place, allow yourself to be seen truly, the warts and all. The more of you that you can share, the more clearly, and the more wholeness of you, the more that you will find yourself being accepted and seen, and the less lonely you will feel, and the more loved you will be by God and others by his grace. He's here in his church, and he's anywhere that people... Come and see you through the lens and the frame of Jesus Christ. Someone says, what are you seeking this year? Say, life with God. He wants us to see what he sees. And what he sees is everything through the eyes of love. He sees you through his eyes of love. He sees this world through the eyes of love. And so let him see you whole, that the whole of you might be loved and might be part of his kingdom this year. May God give us eyes to see him and his kingdom today, this year, and beyond. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.